You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Drum roll, please, because it's time for Middle East analysis. I've got a small grin developing on the face of Dr. Harry Hagopian opposite me because he knows how these things are somewhat sporadic these days. But it's a pleasure to be with you to talk about the Middle East North Africa region with a particular focus today on Israel Palestine. Now, We are actually doing that because Dr. Harry Hagopian has released a new book called Keeping Faith with Hope, The Challenge of Israel-Palestine. My goodness, what a title, uh, which which clearly is an all-encompassing thing, and we will talk about that. So in terms of the region, we are honing this in. So we'll start with this, Harry. This book, if you like, was born from your experiences a collection of essays, you could call it that, over several decades of work. I mean, obviously, we've talked about the Oslo Accords and your work there in the early 90s and all the hope that came with that and was ultimately sadly dashed and in some senses leads us to where we are today with regard to analysing Israel and Palestine. In that particular pre-book launch, I did try and work out how many questions I have asked you on Israel-Palestine and the conflict in the last seven, eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. And I figured, and I think this is a conservative estimate, actually, I've asked you a minimum of 250 questions. Wow. Just on Israel-Palestine. I mean, we've Yeah, yeah, I understand. We've spoken about the broader region. The Gulf states. We've spoken about, you know, Syria, North Africa, all sorts. 250 questions. And then when you gave me the little brief of asking two alongside Marcus Jones of Premier Radio, who also got two, that was a bit of a challenge. Because also I'm trying to avoid the sort of buzzword bingo or phrase bingo, such as I thought I've got to be careful not to get you saying things like, I am not a prophet. Because most of the questions I ask about (laughs) Israel-Palestine are asking you to predict what may or may not happen in your analysis. Um, So two questions was rather tricky. Now, I don't think I'm going to ask you those two questions today. Well, the two questions were tricky, if I may butt in, Mm. James, but they were even trickier than that because I always realise that when we're sitting and talking to each other, okay, there's just the two of us, and we pretty much have an idea what are the issues that we need to tackle. Whereas in a disparate preview of a book launch as the one that took place at Our Lady of Victories, you cannot gauge the real depth of understanding of the people there. Some people might know a lot. Some people might know very little. So the question should be asked in such a way that they're broad enough for everybody, but not too broad to be watered down or diluted completely. So this is why I was very happy. And when I was organizing this or when Monsignor James Curry was organizing this preview book launch and at the same time asking me, well, what do we do, etc.? I thought, why don't we change things a bit? Instead of me standing up and talking for 45 minutes, as you mentioned, I ended up talking for 25, but (laughs) instead of me talking for 45, it would have been nice because I've done a lot of podcasts. You said you've asked me 250 questions minimum on Israel-Palestine. Marcus Jones from Premier Christian Radio has asked me many questions on Uh, Middle East matters and Middle East analysis in the past. So I said, why don't you guys ask me questions? And what was nice about those questions? Well, other than the fact that the people there attending the uh, event would have been interested to see what you come up with, is that they were 
questions. I was totally unaware of it. They were impromptu. We'd agreed that I wouldn't be told what the questions is, so the answers are fresh. And in a sense, yes, they were uh, fresh. And although you didn't ask me about uh, being a prophet or not being <laughs> a prophet, funnily enough, the question of pessoptimism, another one of my little trademarks, yeah. did come up. It did. And then you see, I regretted not bringing up one of our little, uh, <laughs> what, what I think we describe as Harryisms. <laughs> now, I have to say, and I think I did say this at the pre-book launch, I have not yet had the pleasure of going through this book. You have furnished me with a copy, which our listeners can't see, but if I, if I just sort of turn a few pages... I haven't furnished you with a copy. I've offered you a copy. Yes, with great gratitude for all the years of friendship and professional work. Well, I, I tell you, I receive it with great thanks, and I am looking forward to reading it. But you are gloriously different, Harry, as I think I said on the day. <laughs> so we are going to talk about a book that I haven't read, okay. although, although I have asked you those two hundred and fifty questions. So I'd, I'd imagine I know. You know, as we meander through through a very difficult subject that probably won't be solved in our lifetimes, although that's negative. Um, I know most of what you think, but I probably don't know a few of the stories and some I of the anecdotes as well. I think you do, but uh, it does. It shouldn't worry you too much, James, that you haven't read it yet. And here we are talking, uh, doing a podcast on the book because, first of all, as you said, a lot of what is in there. We've discussed it over the past few years. And secondly, my own experience with journalists in general is that half the time they don't know what they're talking about when they're asking questions. So don't feel at all concerned because you're leaps and bounds ahead of them. Well, I mean, it's it's a dangerous ground, isn't it, when, when <laughs> one stands on it saying that they're an expert in anything, really. Um, but I very much value your knowledge and, you know, everything you've been through, as I say, from, from Oslo all the way through. And we, we've talked, I'm, I'm looking at some of All the, the way to the fancy ultimate deal that has not become the, ultimate you know, yet. The deal of the century, or yeah. I, I think even they're drawing back from that descriptor, aren't they? Because, yes, they are. Because it can't really be called that, I don't think. And whether it can be called a deal at all is, is another moot point, I think. But it is hard, I think, to really talk about Israel-Palestine without asking an analyst, a lawyer, someone who's been part of negotiations in the past, where we're going with it. And I know that's difficult because there is no singular answer. There's just a, a look at the options and where things might go and the consciousness of the people and the leaders and so forth. But it, it, it's hard looking at the optimism, pessimism. It's hard not to be pessimistic, isn't it, about Israel and Palestine? It's interesting the way you frame the question, James, because you said, uh, where are we going? Mm. And in a sense, that opens up a little space for me to say something about where we are going differently from what you will have expected me to say, at least at the initial stage, and then we will go into what happens next with Israel-Palestine. But the going is the bit that interests me in this book, because what is this book? This book is a combination of things. There is a word by the publisher of the book, Simon Barrow of Ecclesia Publishing. They kindly published uh, this book, and it's beautiful, and I really like the cover, and the cover represents the old city where that sign of the road, Via Dolorosa, in mm -hmm. Arabic, English, and Hebrew, you can see it everywhere. Uh, so in a sense, uh, there is a bit from Simon there, then there is a very powerful forward by one of my most favorite 
analysts and experts, and I use the term expert advisedly in the Middle East, Rami Khouri, whom I've known for 30 years. Rami and I met first in Amman in Jordan when I featured in two of his Jordan TV Channel 2, which was the English Channel, a program called Encounter. And since then, we've been very good friends and we've done lots of stuff uh, together. So that's in there as well. And then suddenly you have an anthology of uh, articles spreading over 30 plus years And they are selected by the publisher, Simon Barrow, with me in order to reflect certain themes in the book. And each cluster of articles reflects a theme. You have hope, you have fear, you have concern, you have all these things. I'm not going to say too much because I would very much hope that people would buy the book. And then right at the end, there is what I consider a glossary of terms anything from what's a settlement to Zionism to anti-Semitism, all the isms that are buzzwords but that are problematic buzzwords. So this, in a sense, is what the book is. It's, what, 185 pages long, something like that. So it's an easy read. My GP has read it. A couple of priests from the Catholic Church have read it already, and they've been discussing some of my uh, views in the book with me. Now, I come back to the term going because for me you would I would if I were in your shoes I would say okay you've written those articles over a spread of 20 30 years uh, they're available freely in the public domain I can read them I have read them you have your own website epictasis where you have also posted most of these articles so why would you think of putting them together in a book there are two answers to that the personal answer is that everybody and his uncle publishes a book. Yeah. So I thought, well, the opportunity availed itself. Ecclesia Publishing kindly wanted to do this for me. And for me, it's a legacy. It is something to keep behind and to say it's not only online, it's not only digital, it's actually hard copy on the table. That's the personal, self-gratifying motive behind the book. It, it's, it sort of makes me feel okay to know that there is this book. I've done a little book on the Armenian church in the Holy Land. This, by comparison, is much, much uh, deeper and more profound. But there is a much, much more interesting reason why I did it this way. I could have sat there and written my thoughts about the trajectory of the Israel Palestine a conflict, at least using 1967 as the starting point, if not 1948 and the uh, creation of the State of Israel and the Nakba or the Great Catastrophe for Palestinians, I could have chosen any starting point and reached where we are now with my thoughts on the ultimate deal or the deal of the century. Instead of doing that, I chose those articles because as my GP told me, and he was very, very astute in noticing what I had done, as you read through the book, via those different articles which cover a whole range of topics about Israel-Palestine, from the religious to the ecumenical to the legal to the political to the interfaith, you suddenly realize that I'm actually going on a journey with the reader, telling them how 
my own reactions to the conflict have ebbed and, ebbed and flowed, how I perceive the moments of hope and the moments of despair in the Palestinian uh, conflict. So without actually sitting and analyzing what is happening today? Is it good? Is it bad? Should it be one state solution? Should it be two state solution? What happens with the settlements? Uh, is most of the geography of Palestine taken up, etc., etc.? All this, the answers are in those articles. And it really is a journey that seesaws between starting points of uncertainty to optimism to pessimism Two, 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 and there is a lot of richness in those articles there. I think my first question to you at the event was with regard to the Palestinians, and it was with regard to whether they, you know, as a body of people, would put their faith in resistance or dialogue, to paraphrase somewhat. And, you know, I was thinking this morning, knowing you were coming in, we always look at what might the Palestinians agree to, or, or that's one of the things we look at. Turning it on its head, what might the Israelis agree to? We don't talk about that enough, I don't think. Or what, what might the people of Israel be able to agree to that might give us some hope in the future? Well, there is a difference there in what you said, because I take that in two separate ways. When you said, what would Israelis agree to? I would take that as being, what would the Israeli political establishment agree to? And when you say about what Israelis as citizens of the country, of the state of Israel agree to, that's an entirely different issue. Why? Because I think part of the reason why there is now this inertia, this freeze, this lack of progress, is because the Israeli political establishment has over the last 10 to 15 years gone so much to the right of center in, in Israeli politics that at the moment it does not want to concede anything to the Palestinians. Now, the Palestinians aren't the best negotiators. They aren't the people who are best prepared in negotiations. They are people who've done a lot of mistakes over the years. Again, the journey and those articles uh, highlight some of those uh, mistakes, including those at Oslo, including those before Oslo and after Oslo. But Israel, there was still a negotiation between Israelis and Palestinians. Now, the Israeli political establishment and the prime minister, still the incumbent prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, are so beholden to the extreme right that nothing actually uh, inspires hope in terms of finding what is necessary for this conflict, and that is compromise so that we end with a win-win solution rather than a lose-lose or worse, in my opinion, a win-lose solution. So in a sense, that is part of the reason. And the incumbency of President Donald J. Trump also added uh, oil to the fire because it validated Netanyahu's instincts not to do anything. So what has the ultimate deal? And we're already talking about the ultimate deal. We're at the end of the book and we have just started to talking about the book. Yeah. But what does the ultimate deal do? The ultimate deal, in a sense, disempowers, dispossesses Palestinians of any hopes and gives Israel exactly what it wants, at least the establishment in Israel, what it wants, which is to manage 
the the uh, conflict without actually giving away any of the lands and this is why we had the move of the embassy to Jerusalem why we had the recognition of the Golan Heights why we are now talking that if and when the deal of the century so called is unveiled if it ever is unveiled mm-hmm. by the likes of Jared Kushner helped by Jason Greenblatt helped by ambassador David Friedman who's the US ambassador in Israel by the way uh, David Friedman very few people know this and I don't think you even know this mm-hmm. his real name is Tavit Melech which is Hebrew for King David and he is the US ambassador in Israel so I always wonder whether he represents the interests of the United States or the interests of Israel or are they so synchronous that actually they're one and the same so in a sense if and when it is unveiled it probably would lead to a situation where israel would be given the right to manage the situation and when the palestinians say no to the uh, to the deal because there is no way that any self-respecting palestinian can say okay you can take everything you can take all my clothes including my socks and my knickers and then i will stand stark naked in front of you and say i'm happy with this deal if you do that and the Palestinians say no, then that will be the pretext for Israel to annex chunks of the West Bank as well. That is where we're heading. And this is why I'm so worried. And this is why Israeli Jews, as well as Palestinians and others, are worried about this deal that's being cooked up in the kitchen of Jared Kushner, who has very little experience of the Middle East and its real culture, who's very one-sided in his opinions and who actually is now going to deliver something which to my mind uh, would be a disaster to anything resembling hope in faith in justice. Wow. Now I was going to ask you several questions to elicit that type of response. So you've saved me the bother in in some (laughs) ways. But you know, again, drawing back to the 250 questions, drawing back to the amount of times I've asked you about occupation, settlement, the aspirations of the Palestinians versus the security issues of the Israelis and how they feel about their motherland and so forth. You know, I could ask you another 250 and we might not be any the better off, if I'm honest. So part of me, with this in mind, with the book as as like the foundation of everything, I wanted to ask you something about let, let me ask you two questions, about one about Israel, one about Palestine, but more about Israelis and Palestinians. What do you like most about Israeli culture and what do you like most about Palestinian culture, from a personal perspective? It's a very interesting question, uh, James, and it sort of forces me to think about what I like most about the Israeli culture and the Palestinian culture. I've known both quite well. As you know, and this is a cliche, I'm Armenian, so I'm neither Israeli Jew nor Palestinian Arab. And therefore, I look at it slightly from a removed perspective. I like the Israeli sense of chutzpah, the daring, the devilish attitude, the go-getting attitude, the brash attitude, but also the achieving attitude. What I dislike most is when that begins to devour the rights of others. What I like in the Palestinian side or on the Palestinian side of the equation is their kindness, their sense of hospitality, but also, and funnily enough, because there is an oxymoron there somewhere, I like their sense of pain 
and sadness at not being able to realize their dream of having their own state. I'm very much into self-determination. I'm very much for the rights of people to have their own, to basically decide on their own fate. And in a sense, that genuine sadness, forget the political establishment, forget all the people who do the political shenanigans and the power brokers, think about the people themselves, the ordinary Moshe's and Ya'el's and uh, Yassin's and uh, Maryam's. The people can easily, they're both Semitic, they can easily find common ground. But the problem, one of the many problems, is that the political establishments do not allow the people to communicate on a better level because there is always this tension on the political side that divides the people themselves. And in a sense, there can never be an equal footing and a flow between the two peoples when one is the victim and the other is the victimizer, when one is the occupier and the other is the occupied. Once these two people are, when one is doing all the trade and the other one is not even allowed to access any trade to do anything. So in all me, I mean, this whole deal about let's go to Bahrain for the economic summit, I mean, what 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 is the purpose of that, uh, James? Have you asked yourself that? Why is there so much pushback against the Manama uh, Bahrain Economic Summit? Because what the Americans are trying to do with the support of Israel and some of the Arab countries, because there are Arab countries now who are so obsessed by Iran that they do not think that Palestine is now an issue. What are they doing? They're basically doing what in law and I suppose in finances and in business we call acquisitions and mergers. They're preparing or they're creating something called Palestine Corporation. And it's a question of if you want to have shares in Palestine PC, then you have to do what we tell you to do, which is to accept that you forego your sovereignty, you forego your rights, and you just basically have lots of money and have little pockets in which you can do your own self-governance, but nothing more. This is something that the Palestinians will not accept. And there is no way that the twain shall meet if this is... Uh, where we are going. Now, you've talked about the Trump administration. Understandably, it'd be fairly impossible, I think, in this current day and age to talk about Israel-Palestine without what the US is doing at this particular stage. But I'd like to talk about those international actors. Um, Now, naively, I suppose, or a a slightly naive question. I mean, you like calling it naive when you know very well that it's not not a naive question. Go ahead, James. (laughs) It might be a daft question rather than a naive question. It just makes me think, and this might be the case with any negotiation or any international player being part of or looking to be part of a so-called solution to an international conflict or a localised conflict. It seems almost impossible because interests are at stake of that particular nation that, for instance, the US or be it Russia or be it whoever, China can act as referee alone. They're all, you know, it's the, the interests of that particular country come in as well. Would it help or would it even work if the international community, including those neighbours of Israel and Palestine, 
acted more as referee and less with their own interests at heart or is it just impossible to do that well that's very difficult to that's a very difficult thing for anybody to do because when you're involved in a negotiation whether it's a trade negotiation or a political negotiation you automatically look what is it in there for you as well so in a sense it's very difficult but i'll give you another answer and that is to say that there are three ways that the palestinian israeli conflict has been looked at there has been the okay Israelis and Palestinians should sit down at the table and do it by themselves. Well, that hasn't worked. It didn't work on a lot of occasions. It also didn't work when Mahmoud Abbas and Ehud Olmert tried to revive it and they were a whisker away from getting a deal, but then it all fell flat on its face. So the inter-partes negotiations didn't necessarily work. Doing it with the international community, well, we had that famous stroke infamous quartet where the UN, the EU, the United States, Russia, everybody was represented and it was supposed to be the one that heralded, that stewarded, that guided the two parties into a solution. And who was at the top of that as its CEO, as its general manager? Our own Tony Blair. So in a sense, that didn't work uh, as well for a whole variety of reasons, because the five amongst themselves couldn't agree as to what is right and what is wrong, but also because Tony Blair took it and wanted to do his own thing. So the third option was, okay, the only country with enough clout to do it is the United States, particularly that the United States is a very close ally of Israel, and therefore the United States might be able to nudge Israel forward with the compromises that no other power or no other country would do. And that is where the Clinton parameters came out. That is when the Oslo process came out. That is when the Declaration of Principles in 1993 uh, came out. But it also became quite obvious that that was not working. And what this deal, because I come back to the deal in 2019 that was meant to be unveiled on three occasions and hasn't been, and mm. now there is another election in Israel, a general election, so it's not going to be unveiled for another while still, this deal basically, what it does is it destroys the Declaration of Principles, it destroys anything that was achieved at Oslo, and it just wants basically to get rid of the Palestinians as a sovereign reality and replace them as just a people, a tribe, a little group like the Red Indians uh, living somewhere in one of the encampments uh, in territory that once belonged uh, to them. So what has happened is that the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations on their own didn't work out. The quartet and the international community couldn't do it. America now will not do it because America is so much on one side of the equation that it cannot be at all a mediator in this. And the Palestinians are uh, so weak. I mean, they're so fragmented. Khalil Gibran in his The Garden of the prophet, which is a sequel to his masterpiece, uh, the, the Prophet, said, pity the nation divided into fragments, uh, where 
each fragment itself uh, dreams of becoming a nation. And that is a little bit what we're seeing now across the whole MENA region. And I'm digressing a, a little bit, but it's a very lyrical uh, piece, The Garden of the Prophet, if any of our readers or listeners are interested to uh, to go into that. So in a sense, at the moment, it's, it's an impasse. And at the moment, uh, as I said, uh, people use words to describe their allegiance to the solution or resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but those words do not translate into deeds. And in my opinion, coming back to the book again, this is what, as you journey along, going along, as you said, with the various articles and then ending it with the glossary and what have you, you will notice how I'm looking at this and what I think should be the solution. So I was going to ask you this at the pre-launch event. Uh, and working for a Christian organisation, one might have expected a question along these lines, let alone Marcus Jones working for an evangelical Christian broadcaster. Exactly. So probably should have been asked. And this does come up in part three, reconciling difference, because there is another group. I mean, we've talked to Israel, we've talked to Palestine. Christians, mm-hmm. the lands of, of Christ's birth, ministry, passion and resurrection obviously of fundamental interest to me and to you as a Christian as well. It's been asked a million times, but I want to know where we're at just now. In fact, I've read articles in in recent weeks about less of an exodus and more of an extinction of Christians in those lands. Is that likely or will Christians always have a place in Israel-Palestine? You've raised many issues there. The first one that I would comment on is to say that you just said that we spoke about Israelis, we spoke about Palestinians, there is a third group called Christians. Christians are not a third group. Christians are part of the Palestinian people. And therefore you have Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians, and therefore you have two different religions. It reminds me of what one of my gurus, as it were, during the Oslo process, when I was involved in second track negotiations was, somebody whom you know as well from your own work with the Catholic Church, the Patriarch Emeritus Michel Sabah of the Latin Patriarchate in Jerusalem, which is the Catholic Rite Patriarchate. He always used to speak of the two peoples and three faiths of the Holy Land. And by two peoples, he meant Israelis and Palestinians. And by three faiths, he meant Jews, Christians, and Muslims. So that's the first comment. It's an important distinction. It's an important one because... Why? Because many people, you mentioned Marcus, you mentioned mentioned the evangelical community. If you take the American evangelicals, then as far as they're concerned, the Christians in the Holy Land who are part of the Palestinian community don't exist and don't have any importance because they don't understand their faith. And only American evangelicals or American Christian Zionists are the only ones who understand the Bible. So in a sense, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would also say is that there is a very tiny uh, community of Hebraic or Hebrew Christians in the Holy Land. We shouldn't forget them. If you go to Abu Ghosh, if you go elsewhere, you you meet some of those and they have their own pastor who actually answers to the Latin Patriarchate in Jerusalem. Hardly ever spoken about though. We hardly ever speak about them because they're a tiny community and like the Samaritans in the north of the West Bank in Palestine in Nablus, I think they're a little bit the same because they find themselves in paradoxical religious and political circumstances. Uh, The Samaritans 
in uh, the West Bank and the Hebraic Christians in Israel. So there is that. But by and large, it is accepted that most of the Christians are part of the Palestinian community, even the Armenians. And I talk of myself, which is one of the three patriarchates of Jerusalem, therefore one of the most, one of the weighty uh, communities. If you talk to any Armenian in the old city, in the Armenian quarter of Jerusalem, you would tell them which way does your uh, political sympathy lie or empathy, they would automatically say with the Palestinians. And therefore, that is on that level. Now, coming to the question which was raised by the Archbishop of Canterbury once ages ago and before him by Pope Paul VI, does the Christian community, the local indigenous Arab Christian community in Palestine have a future or are we going to end up with a Disneyland for museums, buildings, seminars and not more than that? I personally do not think it's going to happen. For two reasons. One, yes, there's been incredible emigration uh, of Christian communities across the whole Middle East. I mean, even in Egypt, which has the largest community of some 8 to 10 million uh, Copts, there has been an outflow, but the number is so large that there is still a substantial reality in Egypt. But if you look at, in my opinion, the, the, the most telling example is in Iraq. But if you, if coming back to Israel-Palestine, of course there's been an emigrant flow. There used to be 25% of the Palestinians were Christians. Now it's hardly 2.5%. So they've really, really been drained. But there will always be a bulk, a rump there because, as I've said before, those who want to go and those who can go have gone. Those who are there are people who don't want to go and who or who cannot go and therefore they will stay there and that will be part of your uh, Christian community. But there is also another thing which is even more. You said that I am Christian. I believe in my faith. Yes, I do in as much as I can understand it and struggle with it, of course. But for me, a community of faithful is not by the numbers. I always go back to the early church, which was a higgledy-piggledy bunch of uh, people who didn't have any education, who didn't have any management, who didn't have any central authority. They only were sort of an, a, a coming out of an experience that they had with Jesus the Jew, Jesus the Nazarean, and then gradually that became into what uh, Christianity is today with all its divisions and all its glamour, splendor, and also its many, many stains. So uh, the early church was a very tiny church. So for me, numbers aren't what matter. What matters is the bedrock of that faith. So I'm not too fussed if there are seven Christians or 7,000 Christians. What matters to me is that that Christian heritage is not uh, robbed away or wasted away. Absolutely. And um, you're certainly right to point out the important distinction between two peoples and three faiths. So thanks for that. I feel suitably chastised. Let's finish with a question that I... I like ambushing you. No, you because do, Because it's you? very difficult to do that. So I, I enjoy it sometimes. <laughs> got, got me. Got me. I'm, I'm feeling that one. I want to finish with a question that wasn't mine, but was asked to you. And I think it's a very appropriate one, especially, as you say, looking at this, this journey, which the book is, actually. 
You and uh, sorry to butt in there, yeah, but let me also say one other thing as I uh, pontificate. A very, very, very good friend of mine, one of my best friends, actually, uh, she always tells me, Harry, you tend to be pedantic at times. <laughs> so let me be pedantic and say that when I'm talking about a journey, when I'm talking about a spread of articles under a number of themes, Going forward to 2019, from the early 1990s, that also ties in with the cover of the book, because the cover of the book, we said, is the Via Dolorosa. What is the Via Dolorosa? The Via Dolorosa is also known as the Way of Sorrows. Mm. It's also a road. So yeah. I am walking on that road. And what does the Via Dolorosa have? It has the stations of the cross. Indeed. And therefore, in a sense, my articles are taking you across the various stations of the cross, not as a theological enterprise or as a very clever way of saying, and here happened this and there happened that. No, this is just me through my humble experiences, through my small conversations with colleagues and experts that I've come to this conclusion, which is uh, this book, a legacy that will certainly outlast me. Are you trying to tell me you were suffering as you were learning? I always suffer as I learn. And if you don't suffer, it doesn't stay with you. What can I say to that? <laughs> now, maybe three minutes later, I'll ask my final question. <laughs> I only jest, obviously. No, you were asked to give one point of optimism and one point where you might be more pessimistic. So why don't you conclude? Start with the pessimistic, please, and then conclude with one reason why we should be more optimistic about the future for Israel and Palestine. Well, I just quoted uh, Khalid Gibran to you, and I would say that the pessimism is that at the moment there is a total... Uh, deadlock and uh, the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict, no matter what the politicians are saying, uh, is being strangulated uh, and therefore uh, it's almost like uh, on its deathbed and you aren't sure whether the patient is going to survive or the patient is going to die at the moment. There are people who want to switch off the the ventilator or whatever they call that uh, box uh, in the hospital so that the patient can no longer breathe and that will be the end of the patient. And there are others who are saying, no, 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 keep that happening because at some stage the patient will recover. So the pessimist in me says the patient is almost dead on its last breath. The optimist in me says that the patient will wake up and recover because the patient represents a certain ethos, a certain weight, a certain historical reality, a certain political anamnesis that you cannot uh, completely uh, forego. So that's the optimist in me. But the pessoptimist in me, and you're laughing you because love that phrase. I love that phrase, but I come back to where I am at the moment, which is the pessoptimist, which says the patient is not going to die. The patient is not going to wake up yet, but the patient will keep breathing as it is attached to that ventilator. I'm still checking for your vital signs, Harry. <laughs> You've just about kept with it. And so have you, listeners. Thank you ever so much. I think it was well worthy of an extended podcast. I mean, let's be honest. We thought our podcasts were on the ventilator. They just about creep back to life, don't they? They do sometimes creep back to life. So <laughs> once again, thank you for taking this opportunity to sort of talk about Israel-Palestine on the back of my new 
book. Thank you for the listeners. I encourage you all to go and order it online in bookstores, anything. It's available everywhere from Barnes and Noble to Waterstones to Amazon to Goodreads because, not because, I'm not getting a penny out of it. Mm. Not a penny out of it. I'm just keen for people to read somebody who is neither anti-Palestinian nor anti-Israeli, somebody who is pro-peace and pro-justice, and he looks at things from different angles. Look at it. It's a small investment. It's a pizza in a restaurant. So just go for that and see what you think about it. And next time you talk about this to me, James, yourself, I hope you will have read it too. I've read it before the end of the week. <laughs> no, I would totally e- echo that. If your kids allow it. Oh, they will. They will. They won't have a choice. <laughs> um, so that is Keeping Faith with Hope, uh, a very interesting and somewhat provocative title, something we all need to try and look to do. The Challenge of Israel-Palestine, as Harry says, some three decades worth of essays on the subject there. Google it, Keeping Faith with Hope, The Challenge of Israel-Palestine. Google Harry Hagopian, you'll come up with it. Yes, Amazon, Goodreads, Ecclesia, the publisher, the uh, think tank, soon to be redefining itself somewhat, I believe, if I'm allowed to say that. It is well worth a read. I can tell that already, and I can tell that having asked 250 questions of Dr. Harry Hagopian. So do get yourself a copy. I'm looking forward to having a read. And Harry, I hope you will regale us with more from the Middle East, North Africa region at some time in the coming months. I think we can just about say that. I hope so, uh, James. And uh, just to say that today somebody asked me, what do you think of the Middle East, North Africa, Gulf region? And then I started counting Libya, Yemen, Syria, Palestine, Iraq, the list, Algeria, Sudan, the list is endless. The Arab world, as we understand it, if we don't want to use an acronym, MENA Gulf, is in absolute chaos. Mm. And that central Arab weight, which comes from a united voice, is not there. Some people might celebrate that disunion. I don't, because out of dystropy, you cannot always get entropy. Here, here. Dr. Harry Hagopian, as always, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much indeed. My pleasure. <laughs>